From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As the world tries to cut global warming emissions, there's one huge and unexpected source of greenhouse gases few people think about. Food waste by itself represents 3.3 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide. If you measured food loss as a country on its own, it would be the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases behind China and the United States. How keeping foods cool could help feed the hungry and cool the planet. Also in Alaska, wild salmon help drive the economy. If we give these guys fresh water and a good habitat to spawn in, these fish come back year after year after year and we can keep making money on them. But locals say plans for mines upstream in Canada could threaten the fish. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As much as a third of all the food produced by farmers around the world goes to waste, most before it even gets into a kitchen. Yet millions of people don't get enough to eat, and the carbon footprint of all that wasted food is enormous. Much of the wastage is due to the lack of proper refrigeration, especially in the developing world. So there's a new push to spread the system known as the coal chain, the use of refrigerated containers, trucks, and trailers to keep food cool as it travels from field to fork. The first World Coal Chain Summit in London recently aimed to spur the discussion on how to improve this network to prevent food loss. John Mandyke, the Chief Sustainability Officer of United Technologies Building and Industrial Systems, hosted the summit and came into our studio. And we should note UTC is an underwriter of Living on Earth. Welcome back. Steve, it's great to be back. So why do we, you know, lose so much food? Well, food loss happens in two different places predominantly. At the consumer level, about one-third of our food is lost because we buy too much and we throw it away. That's an issue mostly in the developed markets. In the developing economy, it's a different problem. The food never makes it out of harvest. It rots on the field because there isn't a good transportation infrastructure. Or if it is transported, it's transported in poor conditions to a wet market, an outdoor market where the food rots waiting for consumers to buy it. So it's an inefficient system in the developing economy, and that's where we're trying to raise the level of awareness and dialogue. What's the climate cost of all this food waste and loss? I mean, I imagine that all the food that never even gets eaten has to have a huge carbon footprint. It's staggering, Steve. So food waste by itself represents 3.3 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide. If you measured food loss as a country on its own, it would be the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases behind China and the United States. So now, your meeting was about the cold chain. What kind of food is transported through the cold chain, and how does its importance compare with non-perishable foods? Well, the perishable products, you can think of meat, fruits, vegetables, dairy. Those are all essential elements of our diet that complement grain, but have uh, different characteristics than grain for preservation. This is exactly where the cold chain can play a role to extend the supply of those foods which aren't making it to our tables due to food loss. Talk to me about some of the technologies that can be used uh, going forward. Sure. So the cold chain has uh, several different elements to it. So you could think about, okay, if food is grown at a farm, how do we store it at the farm before we move it? So that could be 
uh, cold rooms right at the farm. Then when we move the food to a production facility, for example, it could be in a refrigerated truck or a trailer. Um, at the production facility, we have to make sure it's maintained with the proper temperature. And then, of course, when it gets to the retail setting, to a grocery store or a, a corner market, that it's stored and maintained and presented in a refrigerated display case so that it extends the supply of that food. What are some of the improvements in technology that will make this uh, cheaper and more efficient? There's been several advancements in the cold chain from an environmental standpoint to green the cold chain itself, using solar technology to power battery packs for these, for these products. So technology providers have a role to play to actually scale technology to what the need is. We've done that with a product we call City Fresh. It's a simple box refrigeration unit for a box truck, and it's meant to solve the problem of the farmer in India who's transporting tomatoes in the back of an open pickup truck 100 kilometers from his farm to the market and watching them rot en route, when instead he could be using a simple truck that cools his produce to about 40 degrees, that's it, and transport that same food to market and get better yield so he can sell more produce. Now, in places like Sub-Saharan Africa, India, uh, the lack of electricity is profound. How does the call for improving the cold chain rely on development in these places? Clearly, development is needed. A critical role governments can play is looking at the role of food safety standards. Food safety standards have the benefit of jump-starting the cold chain, but they also have the benefit of making sure our food security is in place and that people who are receiving fresh produce, such as meats, and, and dairy receive that produce in the top quality that it should be because it was preserved and transported and stored under proper conditions. So I've seen projections that say by 2050 we're going to need, what, 50% more food on the planet? I would argue we need no more food on the planet, that we produce enough food on the planet today to feed everybody today, and if we do it more efficiently to feed the people of tomorrow. We just need to make sure that we get the food that we make to the place it needs to go. It's harder to imagine a more inefficient system for such an essential resource. We simply can't grow more and throw more away as we, as we grow our planet. It's not sustainable. We don't have the land to do it, and we don't have the water to do it. Let's say someone uh, listening to this conversation says, this is a terrific idea. I know these folks living in Sri Lanka that could really use this. What's to be done to to put money in the pockets of people who could buy this infrastructure? Well, one, one element of financing could come from the climate change debate. Um, as we look at ways to solve climate change, there will be financing available for technologies that will mitigate climate change effects. Food waste and food loss is one of those. The low-hanging fruit for climate protection is literally rotting, and that's food waste. It's rotting before our eyes. And the climate debate is missing this fundamental and significant element for how we can address climate change together, but also to address hunger. And by doing that, I think we'll provide greater opportunity to prevent food waste and get more food to more people that need it. Terrific concept to connect the dots between world hunger and climate and all that. How do you get this going? There's a new organization that's just forming called the Global Food Cold Chain Council which will bring together technology providers, suppliers, retailers in the food industry to think about ways that we can not only green the cold chain in the first place to lower the carbon footprint of the cold chain, but use the cold chain as an essential element 
to solving this issue of food loss. Today, if you think that 870 million people aren't getting enough food, we can't feed the people we have on our planet today. How are we going to feed the people on the planet that are coming in the next 35 years? Projections show we're going to add another 2.5 billion more people on this planet. We don't have the capability to feed them with the inefficient systems that we have today. We know we can feed more people, and we know we can address the carbon emissions from food loss to make a meaningful difference for climate protection. John Mandike is the Chief Sustainability Officer of United Technologies Building and Industrial Systems. John, thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. Steve, thank you very much. Now, a fair amount of food waste comes when affluent consumers buy healthy foods they should eat, but then leave them to molder in the fridge in favor of high-fat and sugar junk food. Let's face it, junk food can be addictive and hard to kick. But a recent study in the journal Nutrition and Diabetes suggests that it's possible to retrain the brain to crave healthier options by using a strategy called cognitive restructuring. For the study, researchers randomly assigned overweight or obese people to either a control group or a weight loss intervention group, which met regularly and was provided a high-fiber, high-protein diet. After six months, an MRI showed the intervention group had an increased brain response to healthy protein and fiber-rich foods and less response to high-calorie junk foods. To find out more, we called up a study co-author, Professor Susan Roberts of the Nutrition School at Tufts University. She spoke with Living on Earth's Helen Palmer. So can you give me a short description of your study and what its results were in terms of dieting? What we have is the first demonstration that it's possible to really rewire people's brains so that they learn to like healthy food and that they're less tempted by junk food. We did some baseline brain scans, and then we randomized people to either to a, what we called a waitlisted control or to our own weight loss intervention. And then six months later, we remeasured them. And we were looking at changes in the brain's addiction centers, you know, to, to see how much they were lighting up for different kinds of foods. And what did you find when you looked at the brain scans? So we showed people a bunch of pictures. And some of the pictures were of healthy food. There was green salads, grilled chicken, you know, all the things that people know are healthy. And then there was also things like French fries, big deluxe chocolates, um, fried chicken, things that everybody knows it's not good to eat too much of. And we were looking for their brain's response to these pictures. What you're doing is you're looking for the amount of neuronal activity in this reward centre This was a study about what tempts people. And the results were really quite amazing that they really were less tempted for things like fried chicken and more tempted for grilled chicken after they'd been through the intervention compared to our waitlisted people who got nothing. Now, you you call this cognitive restructuring. What exactly are, are you doing? So cognitive restructuring is the process of changing your brain. When you see a brain scan that has somebody lighting up less for junk food and lighting up more for healthy food, what you've done is you've changed the pathways in the brain. You've effectively put some of those pathways connected to junk food to sleep and you've rewired some other pieces so that healthy pathway is more active. 
But surely that means that if you happen to pass a, a donut shop and say, oh, I really feel like a donut or I'm really feeling hungry, I'll just have one of those, could you backslide into the old junk food ways? Oh, you could definitely backslide. I mean, the, I think the power of this approach is that people say they're less tempted and so they're less likely to stop for that donut. But, you know, you can regrow those craving circuits for donuts. It's not like we've killed the circuits. I think we've put them to sleep. And so, you know, there's a certain amount of care, if you like, not to get casual and eat the things that you're no longer craving just because they're around in order to maintain this new and kind of healthier way of eating. I'm interested if there are lots of different possible circuits or if there's one circuit and what you've done is change the one circuit. There's a ton of different circuits. You know, there's a circuit, roughly speaking, for every food. Oh, really? So it's just a matter of which circuit lights up? Well, I think, you know, eating healthy food when you're hungry is one of the most important things that people can do on their own because hunger is a very important way to kind of push those pathways in the right direction. So tell me a little about the intervention. What did it entail? So first of all, a disclosure. I think this is a really important advance in obesity treatment. And as a scientist, I can't possibly scale this to make this available to, you know, millions of people. So I have given the program to a company. But what it is, it's uh, we have our own unique dietary composition. We have menus that we get people to follow while they learn how to do the new program. We've designed the menus so that they have a ton of choices. We have pizza, we have hot dogs, we have steak, we have burgers, we have ice cream sundaes. And some of them come with recipes, but some of them are just construction meals where you buy the right stuff in the supermarket and you put it together. And the brain training happens as a result of eating the right things and not eating the wrong things. So if you're allowing people to eat pizza and eat uh, burgers and eat hot dogs, there's got to be a very strict kind of portion control behind this as well. Well, portion control is part of it, but the composition of these foods is very different. It's a fairly high-protein diet. It's a low-glycemic-index diet. It's a very high-fibre diet. So they can have pizza, but it's my own formulation which has more fibre and more protein and less carbs, for example. So that's one of the ways that we get rid of cravings is we give people the taste they like, but the composition is a, is a better composition for controlling cravings. But you're suggesting a particularly high-fibre diet, which is not necessarily what's to be found out there unless you're shopping very carefully. I think shopping carefully is definitely part of it. There's tons of good high-fibre, low-carb breads, crackers, pastas, even soups. All of the foods that you could want for healthy weight regulation are out there today. Careful shopping is actually what it comes down to. You can't just go back to exactly what you were doing before because what you were doing before caused you to gain weight. So there's some long-term changes that need to be made. But I think what we're doing is getting people to enjoy those long-term changes so they don't feel like deprivation. Susan Roberts, author of The Eye Diet and professor of nutrition and psychiatry at Tufts University, spoke with Living on Earth's Helen Palmer. Coming up, a science historian's words of warning about warming and what the future might hold if we fail to heed them. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. 
A slim paperback novel called The Collapse of Western Civilization, A View from the Future, landed in our office the other day. Its cover art caught our attention. Under a lowering sky, a red desert stretches to the horizon and a bottle with a message sticks out of the sand. Its authors are two science historians, Naomi Oreskes of Harvard and Eric Conway of Caltech. Their 2010 nonfiction volume, Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscured the Truth on Issues from Tobacco Smoke to Global Warming, was a bestseller. This latest book switches to science fiction. It's 2393. An historian living in the Second People's Republic of China reflects on how science, democracy, and the free market all failed to keep global warming from upending society and nearly driving humans extinct. Naomi Oreskes joins us now. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. So why does a historian write fiction? Well, Eric and I were struggling with some way to convey something important that we felt we had come to understand people really weren't getting why climate change really mattered. And lots of people had the impression that climate change was something that was just about polar bears. So we wanted to write something that would convey why this is not just an issue about polar bears. This is an issue about us, about our way of life, and also about our institutions, about our economic and political and democratic institutions. Talk to me a little bit about how you decided what effects of climate disruption that you included in here in your description and how likely those are. This is a work of fiction because it's imaginary, because it takes place in the future. But everything that happens in the book up until 2013 has actually already happened. So we didn't have to make up any of the parts of the story that take place up until the present. And everything that happens beyond 2013 is based on projecting outward the scientific evidence that already exists. So we already have scientific evidence that hurricanes are possibly becoming more intense. We already have very strong scientific evidence for sea level rise and the destabilization of the West Antarctic ice sheet. We already have scientific evidence for the role of climate change, things like droughts and crop failure. So we simply took all of the scientific information, both of things that have happened already or things that are very plausibly on the horizon. And then we wove a story around imagining that those things actually happen. So what you're saying is uh, if you see the boulder rolling down the hill, you don't have to wait to know that it's going to wind up someplace towards the bottom. Exactly. That's exactly right. And we also wanted to say that, although we don't want to disparage the work that we ourselves have done, it didn't take a lot of imagination to imagine what would happen when that boulder hit the bottom, especially if there were a town sitting at the bottom of the hill. One of the key parts of your novel is uh, the notion that democracy fails and fails miserably. Why did you pick that theme? Well, this really fell out from our book, Merchants of Doubt. So in Merchants of Doubt, we told the story about a group of men who fought the scientific evidence of climate change because they were afraid of its implications. That is to say, would lead to the undermining of democratic systems and become a kind of invitation for authoritarian governments to take control of the marketplace, of the relocation of people, and other things like that. And so we felt that the profound irony of the story was that by denying the reality, they actually increased the likelihood that disruptive climate change would lead to the very outcomes that they most dreaded. So the one civilization that comes out comparatively well in your novel is China. Now, of course, China is, in some respects, the oldest civilization on the planet, you know, continuously operating for the last 5,000 or so years. But why did you pick China? Well, 
there were two reasons. The first is the one you suggested, that China is the oldest continuously existing civilization on Earth. So just from a simple, logical, practical point of view, it seemed most plausible that China would continue even if other civilizations did not. But we also wanted to bring out this ironic point that if things really start to go bad, it's going to be the authoritarian countries that are more in a position to take control of the economy and relocate people, deal with food shortages and food riots. So we wanted to bring out that point that if you really care about democracy, you ought to be doing everything in your power to stop climate change because disruptive climate change will not be friendly to liberal democracies. What of what China is doing today supports your thesis here? Well, China is very complicated, and lots of people like to bash China because there's this you know, huge pollution problem in China and just amazing, amazing emissions increases in the last 10 years that very few people anticipated. So it's very easy to look at China and to blame them and to say, well, why should we take action on climate change when their emissions growths are so rapid? But at the same time, China has actually made massive investments in solar energy, in um, fourth-generation nuclear power. There's a lot of talk in China about a carbon tax. So China is at this complicated country where both good and bad things are happening at the same time. So in the optimistic scenario, the good side of what's happening in China, the carbon tax, the massive investment in solar power, those would be the points that prevail. We, we don't really take a position on whether that's what happens. We simply speculate that the authoritarian aspects of Chinese culture become resurgent again, and those aspects then come to the fore as China remobilizes and moves hundreds of millions of people to higher, safer ground. Part of your book is really tough on the scientific method, um, the drive for scientists to be absolutely sure that something is right. Why do you talk about that? Well, one of the issues that's come up a lot in the last few years surrounding the whole issue of climate change is the question of scientific communication. And a lot of scientists have thought that this was simply a problem of people not really understanding the science. And Eric Conway and I have argued that that's not really true, that a lot of the resistance to climate change has to do with the political and economic issues that are at stake. But there is one element of it we think that is about scientists and scientific communication. And that's the fact that scientists hold themselves to an extremely high bar before they're willing to say that they know something is true. So an example that many people have heard about has to do with hurricanes. We have tremendous amounts of evidence that extreme weather events are getting more extreme. And we know that when the ocean warms up, you have more energy to drive hurricanes. So there's lots of good reasons to link climate change to hurricanes and to say that as the world warms, we expect hurricanes to become either more frequent or more intense. And yet the scientific community has been reluctant to make that link because it hasn't hit this high level of confidence, which is the so-called 95% confidence limit. So by setting this, the standard so extremely high, scientists sort of protect themselves against a certain kind of error, the error of thinking something's true that maybe isn't. But they put all of us at risk to a different kind of error, which is the error of doing nothing, the error of thinking we're not sure about something that's actually taking place. So what you're saying is that science doesn't much like the precautionary principle, doesn't much like the majority of evidence, wants the uh, overwhelming uh, amount of evidence. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I don't really like to talk about the precautionary principle in terms of climate change because we're way past the point of precaution. I mean, precaution would have been doing something about this 20 years ago. 
I guess the way I like to think about it is there's two metaphors that lots of people are familiar with. One is crying wolf and the other is fiddling while Rome burns. Scientists have been very, very afraid of crying wolf. And the consequence of that is that we've all been fiddling while Rome burns. Or maybe I should say we've been fiddling while Greenland melts. Naomi, what about the trend in science to have scientists be highly specialized? Yes, the specialization of science is a really important part of this problem, and it's something we talk about in the book. So climate change is a very complicated issue in which the physical, the biological, the economic, and the political aspects of our world all come together. But climate change as an issue has mostly been understood by scientists as a question of the physical environment, the atmosphere, and to some extent the ocean and the ice sheets. And scientists are very, very specialized. So even within the physical science, you have people who specialize just in ice. And even within ice, you have people who specialize just in ice cores or just in ice modeling or, you know, just in the bubbles inside the ice. And this highly specialized aspect of science is partly why science is powerful. But at the same time, it makes it hard for scientists to connect the dots. On Twitter, a bunch of us have started using the hashtag connect the dots because we're trying to make the point that... It's true, no one hurricane, no one storm, no one flood proves that we have climate change. But the collection of all of these things, all of the different dots, is making a very, very clear picture. And one of the strange things that Eric Conway and I feel as historians is that in a weird way, we found ourselves in this position of connecting the dots. And we found ourselves talking about things and saying things that we felt confident were true, things we felt confident were supported by the scientific evidence, and yet which not that many scientists were actually talking about. Economics is called the dismal science by some. And, uh, and in your book, uh, economists, well, they don't come out terribly well. <laughs> well, of course, nobody really comes out terribly well in the book. So, you know, we're equal opportunity historians in that respect. But the principal point we try to bring attention to in the book is not so much economics as a discipline, but economics as an ideology, the ideology that we call free market fundamentalism. And this has been an important theme for Eric and I since we first started working on this issue, which is nearly 10 years ago, that many of the people who are in denial about the reality of climate change have a kind of faith that the market will somehow do its magic and that this problem will somehow be miraculously solved by the invisible hand of the marketplace moving all the pieces into place and coming up with some kind of solution. We've known about the reality of climate change for a long time now, and we've been watching the effects of climate change for at least 10, 15 years now. To think that the market on its own will somehow miraculously solve this problem is, in my opinion, just wishful thinking. And so we're trying to bring attention to the fact that while there are many good things about market-based economies, we face a really significant problem that's not going to be solved by the free market on its own. It hasn't been solved by it to date, and there's no evidence to suggest that it will be solved. And so thinking about that wishful thinking, that kind of magical thinking, is really, really crucial to understanding how to break the logjam and figure out what we really need to do about this issue. To what extent are you saying that catastrophic climate disruption is a market failure? That's exactly what we're saying. And it's not just us. I mean, many economists have said this too. So in fairness to economists, it's not as if no one in the economics community recognizes this. Nick Stern, who's the former chief economist of the World Bank, uh, has said that global warming, climate change is the greatest market failure ever seen. And I think that's exactly right. Now, 
let's face it, humans very often do things that aren't good for us uh, on an individual level, uh, you know, smoke cigarettes, uh, drink too much, knowing full and well that uh, it's likely to kill us ultimately. So with that in mind, what do you think are some potential solutions to the way that we are hurting ourselves by, you know, keeping our heads tucked in the sand about what's happening with the climate? Well, what you said is true, but it's also true that humans have great capacity to change, and particularly when they work together and have good leadership. So since you mentioned tobacco, and that's something that Eric Conway and I wrote about in our previous book, we know that in the case of tobacco, more than 75% of Americans smoked cigarettes back in the 1950s. Today, that number is down to only about 25%. Millions of lives have been saved in America and elsewhere around the world through tobacco control. So how did that happen? Well, it was a combination of two important things. One was people understanding the scientific evidence that tobacco smoking can kill you. And the other was leadership, leadership from people like the U.S. Surgeon General, who spoke to the American people about what the risks were. So this is why telling the truth about the science, being articulate about the science, fighting against disinformation about the science is so important. We, the American people, need to have good information in order to make good decisions. And we've been denied good information on climate change because there has been so much disinformation, misinformation, false equivalents. And we've also been lacking leadership for all kinds of reasons that I think the American people kind of get. Well, let's talk about leadership. A key point of your book is that uh, leaders really fail to act on a timely basis. What could we do now to change the scenario that you paint? Well, this is, of course, a tricky issue. Um, I feel like I've been waiting for a lot of years for a Nixon goes to China moment, but it hasn't happened yet. So when leadership fails, you know, when the top-down approach doesn't work, then you have to think about bottom-up. And I think that's why increasingly we're seeing signs of activism, especially among young people. So at my university, at Harvard, at MIT, at Stanford, all across the United States, students around the country are asking university leaders to think about their investments in the fossil fuel industry and to say that maybe the time has come where that's no longer an acceptable thing to do. So they are already starting to demand that their elders either fix it or get out of the way, right? <laughs> You're a historian. Where have we had that kind of fundamental change in human history? Well, many times. I mean, if you look at the history of the United States, the Civil War and the abolition of slavery is an extremely important example because slavery was a profound and tremendous evil, and we abolished it, but it took a civil war. And I don't think anybody wants to say that the Civil War was a good thing. The abolition of slavery was a good thing, but the Civil War was a huge human, political, and social tragedy. So the way I think about it as a historian is, can we please try to find a way to fix this problem short of having some kind of terrible outcome like the Civil War? The view of some is, is that you don't get radical changes in leadership and, uh, and behavior without revolution. Well, see, I don't agree with that, though. I mean, again, if we go back to tobacco, we have seen very, very significant social change over tobacco, and that didn't involve a revolution. That involved people working hard systematically on a lot of different levels. So we have models for social change that involve disruption. We have models for social change that involve progress without horrible disruption. So I think we have a choice here. And I think in a way, that's why Eric and I have written this book. We want to say to our readers, there is a choice here, and the choice is in our hands, but time is running out. We can't sit on our hands indefinitely and expect this to come out okay. 
Naomi Oreskes is co-author of the new novel, The Collapse of Western Civilization, along with Eric Conway. She teaches at Harvard University. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today, Professor. Thank you. It's been really great speaking with you. Your comments on our program are always welcome. Call our listener line anytime at 800-218-9988 or write to Post Office Box 99007, Boston, Massachusetts, 02199. Our email address is comments at LOE.org and visit our webpage at LOE.org. Coming up, heading north to Alaska in search of fish. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies, container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food, and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Summer in southeast Alaska is salmon season. As the days grow long, the iconic fish begin to run up rivers and streams, and the fishing economy jumps to life. Juneau isn't the biggest fishing town in the region, but salmon are everywhere, on every restaurant menu, on T-shirts, in gift shops. And in the harbor, hundreds of fishing boats constantly come and go. Just a few miles outside of the city, small commercial fishing boats cruise around the mouth of the great Taku River, netting the salmon as they head upstream. Juneau is also a popular jumping-off point for fly fishing trips, and sport fishing is an important source of income. Living on Earth's Emmett Fitzgerald spent some time in Juneau in the summer of 2014, reporting on the fish, their importance to the people who live there, and potential threats to the salmon that drive the local economy. And a fly fisherman with a conservation ethic gave Emmett a lesson in casting and salmon science. It's a blue summer day, about as warm as it gets in southeast Alaska. Fly fishing guide Mark Hieronymus has the morning off, but he's more than happy to spend it at one of his favorite fishing holes. Although he's not about to let me give away the precise spot on national radio. You could say that we're, we're uh, at a small stream very close to the mouth of Taku River in Taku Inlet. In chest-high waders, we tramp along the pebbled banks. Where the stream narrows, Mark wades in, and we slosh across to the other side. The rushing water squeezes the waders tight and cold against my legs, and I have to lean into the current to avoid toppling over. On the other shore, Mark sets up shop. He puts his pole together, ties on a feathery orange fly, and starts showing me how it's done. You're gonna go like this with this rod, you're gonna cast it back out there, and you wanna cast this kind of gentle, so yeah. I'll show you this you cast called a roll yeah. cast. Okay. If it ever tightens up, Do that. that's a fish. There's so many fish in this stream that even I managed to get a few bites, but Mark's the real master here. As the line dances back and forth above his head, he tells me about the different salmon in southeast Alaska. The largest of those, in terms of numbers, 
are pink salmon. The, the run sizes fluctuate, but this year, to give you an idea, this is going to be a poor run of pink salmon this year, and they're projecting a harvest of around 22 million with a total escapement of somewhere over 30 million. There's five salmon species in all. As well as the pink, there's chum, coho, sockeye. And then we get king salmon, too, that run in here. And those are the commercially caught fish. And then we also have uh, steelhead, which is the the anadromous form, the ocean-going form of rainbow trout. That's the sort of the prize sport fish. That's the crown jewel of most sport catches. And here in Southeast Alaska, we have uh, officially about 330 streams with steelhead in them. But if you talk to uh, folks that have fished for them for a long time, they'll tell you that that number is closer to about 450 streams with steelhead in them. So this one? This one does have steelhead, but you don't have to print that. Mark lands his fly a few feet from the opposite bank, just above a cluster of dark shadows hanging in the water. They look like rocks to me, but Mark says they're pink salmon, or as he calls them, humpies, after the characteristic hump on the back of the male. These humpies are in their final days of life, waiting for more salmon to join them upstream. When they get a quorum, they'll spawn and die. These humpies have a two-year life cycle, so these fish here, when they spawn, you know, they'll die and they enrich the stream here and they're, uh, the young swim out to sea next year, next spring. Those fish will return in 2016 in the same number, sometimes even more. It doesn't take long for Mark's fly to get some action. Well, this is a pink salmon. Uh, looks like a female and a little one. It grabbed it. Yeah. Got a little nip on the outside of them. There's, uh, there's seals that sit out off of this, the river mouth here. And the seals will try to grab the fish. Wow, look at that thing. So you think that, that wound there is a seal? Yeah, it's most likely a seal. It's pretty fresh. Is that going to be life threatening to that fish? Well, the thing about it is this fish is on its spawning run, so its days are numbered right now. And so that wound might get infected, but that's not going to be the cause of it dying. The cause of it dying is going to be, it's on its spawning run, it was going to die anyway. The salmon life cycle is a well-documented natural wonder. Somehow, each fish manages to find its way back from the open ocean to a little stream like this one where it was born. Scientists think they use the Earth's magnetic field and their sense of smell to help them get back home. But it's still a bit of a mystery. This summer, though, the salmon cycle was disrupted on one of the biggest sockeye rivers in North America. On August 12th, a dam holding back wastewater from the Mount Polly copper and gold mine in British Columbia burst, sending over 6 billion gallons of polluted water and mine waste into the Fraser River, just as the sockeye had begun to swim upstream. Mark says that as he watched the horrific images on the news, all he could think about was the salmon. Once they enter fresh water on their spawning run, their time is limited, and so they have to find clean gravel and have clean water to spawn in. And that's the whole reason these fish come back. So if there's no place for them to do it, or if the habitat is compromised, then the results are, potentially, you're missing an entire year class of fish. Canadian officials say the Fraser River sockeye have weathered that spill fairly well, but it's way too early to know what the long-term impact on the population will be. 
The wastewater was filled with heavy metals that could linger in the rivers and lakes for years to come. And that's bad news for the salmon. What people don't think about is the effects of some of these, these harmful toxins to phytoplankton or in-stream invertebrates. And if you lose that food base, then you're going to lose the fish. It's not, a, it's not an if. If there's nothing there for them to live on, then you lose the fish. You're basically ripping out the bottom of the food chain and the fish follow. Mark hopes that the Mount Polly disaster is a wake-up call about the dangers of mining in sensitive watersheds. British Columbia is in the middle of a mining boom, and several BC mines are planned along rivers that flow right into southeast Alaska. Rivers like the Eunuch, the Stikine, and the Taku near where we are right now. Mark says that if anyone doesn't understand why these projects are a bad idea, just look at Mount Polly. The potential for something like that to happen, as we've seen, has now gone up greatly because it has happened. And so to have it happen in a place that produces, a place like, say, the Taku Valley or the Stikine Valley or the Eunuch Valley that produces a, a substantial amount of southeast Alaska's fish, frankly, it's fairly horrifying. As he talks, Mark is constantly casting, his arm rocking back and forth with a practiced finesse. He lays the line down on the water and lets the fly drift through the salmon shadows. If they don't bite in five seconds, he yanks it out and starts again. For Mark, protecting fish is a personal economic issue. He's had a lot of different jobs since moving to Juneau 25 years ago. Seafood processor, fly designer, and today, as well as being a fly fishing guide, he's the sport fish outreach coordinator for Trout Unlimited Alaska. That's, I, I always, you know, people, when they find out I work for Trout Unlimited, they say, what is that, some kind of environmentalist organization? I say, no, we're conservationists. There's a big difference. I want to conserve it so I can keep killing it and keep making money off of it. But they have to be around for me to do that. Before long, Mark's got another fish on the line. He pulls the salmon out of the water. It's another female, he says. The thing that people don't really realize is that if we give these guys fresh water, clean water, and a good habitat to spawn in, the management is such that these fish come back year after year after year, and we can keep making money on them. Mark pulls the hook out of the lip and slides the fish back in the water. It lingers for a moment, then swims off. In only a few weeks, he says, she'll lay her eggs and die. But if the water stays clean and the habitat healthy, he'll be back on this bank in two years, trying to catch her children. For Living on Earth, this is Emmett Fitzgerald in Juneau, Alaska. Emmett Fitzgerald is back now from Alaska and joins me in the studio. So Emmett, this sounds like quite the trip. Yeah, you know, Southeast Alaska is really a pretty remarkable place. It feels cliche to talk about how wild Alaska is, but really that's that's what it felt like to me coming from coming from Boston. It's just this epic landscape and you're you're right in the middle of it. Um, I you know, I was struck I flew into Juneau and and the first thing I I realized pretty quickly is that there's no roads coming in and out of Juneau. It's the capital city of a, you know, the biggest state in the union. There's no roads coming in and out of it. But there's this ferry system, a public ferry system that connects all the different towns uh, in Southeast Alaska. And so when I left Juneau, I took I took a ferry. I left at like four o'clock in the afternoon and, and took a ferry overnight um, to this little town 
called Wrangell, far in the south of southeast Alaska. And I took the public ferry boat, and you're on this this boat, and it looks, you know, you feel like you're on a cruise ship. It feel, you feel like you should have paid a luxury tour price to see the views that you're seeing, but you're really, you know, you're just traveling like everybody else. I expected there to be tourists on the boat, but it was, and there were some tourists, but it was mostly just everyday Alaskans going to see their family, or they had business down south, and I was I was particularly struck there was a, a high school sports team on mine that was traveling to the, you know, whatever their next game was. All the while, you're going past this amazing scenery, these huge trees. Yeah, it's the Inside Passage. It's this archipelago of islands, um, and I saw you know, all kinds of wildlife. Right as the sun began to set, humpback whales started breaching all around the boat, and it was really pretty spectacular. How'd you feel about the eagles that you see? Yeah, yeah. You know, in uh, in Alaska, for me, you know, I was I saw the first time I saw an eagle, I pushed the guy next to me and said, "Oh my God, look, it's a bald eagle!" And the guy, you know, looked at me like, "Dude, whatever, it's a bald eagle. They're everywhere." And yeah, they're, they're like pigeons in Juneau. You, I must have seen thousands of bald eagles before I left. Now, um, tell us a bit about the mines that the fisherman in your story is so concerned about. I've heard a lot about the pebble mine in Alaska, but these are different, right? Yeah, I mean, Pebble is obviously a story that's got international attention over the last few years. Um, that's this massive uh, copper and gold mine in Bristol Bay, which is one of the biggest sockeye-producing uh, fisheries in the world. And that project's kind of in limbo at this point. A lot of the major investors have pulled out, and now the EPA is involved, and it's in, in the court process. Um, but as that's dragged on, some of these these mining companies that aren't getting as much attention in British Columbia have really started to move forward. They're also still in a preliminary stage, and some of them have big financial and regulatory hurdles to clear. But people in southeast Alaska, which is also a really important salmon fishery, are beginning to look at these mines and say, wait a second, because a lot of them are on river sheds that flow over the border from British Columbia into southeast Alaska. And a lot of those uh, fishermen depend on those river sheds. And I, I gather when I heard in your piece uh, about the Mount Polly uh, disaster that that's got people really extra concern. Yeah, the Mount Polly thing really is something that, that, that really highlighted the, the danger there for a lot of people. This video, uh, you should take a look. We're going to have a link to it on our website, but the video is just so startling. This this torrent of gushing sludge from the Mount Polly mine, you know, pouring down this really scenic river valley. Um, and I think a lot of people saw that and just were really pretty terrified about the possibility that something with some of these new mines could happen. It's obviously not, you don't know that just because a mine is built doesn't mean that something disastrous like that's going to happen, but it, it definitely is a worst case scenario and a lot of people are scared. So this week you took us fishing. What, where are you going to take us next week, Emmett? Yeah, so next week we're going to look at this mine, which is near the Taku River, which is just outside of Juneau and a major salmon river, and it's called the Tulsaqua Chief. The original Tulsaqua Chief was abandoned over 50 years ago. Um, it's a copper and gold mine, and there's still actually some pollution from that mine that's leaking into the river. But now a new company is trying to redevelop the project, and so what I'm going to do, I, I took a, a plane ride in this tiny little float plane. They're like the you know the the propeller planes that land on the water. They're everywhere in Alaska because there's no 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 roads. Um, and so I went up there with a fisherwoman from Juneau, and you get to hear her reaction when she sees this mine site and this, you know, this potential mine that's perched right on the river that's so important to her business. I'm looking forward to it, Emmett. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Well, we stay up in the far north for Bird Note this week and head out to sea with Mary McCann. The Bering Sea in winter is a realm to which most people, aside from some very hardy fishermen, give a wide berth. 
Winter in this northern sea framed by Alaska and Siberia is frigid, stormy, and dark. But remarkably, some birds seem right at home here. The crested auklet is one such bird. A petite cousin of puffins, the crested auklet stands 10 inches high, weighs 9 ounces, and is feathered in charcoal gray. This little seabird takes its name from a comical crest curling out over the top of its large orange bill. If that's not whimsical enough, crested auklets bark like chihuahuas. And to top that off, the seabirds exude an odor of oranges from a chemical they produce that repels bothersome ticks. Crested auklets nest in immense colonies on Bering Sea islands and remain nearby through winter. Picture a flock of tens of thousands of crested auklets flying low across the wave tops, yipping like an army of chihuahuas while trailing a perfume of fresh citrus. I'm Mary McCann. There are pictures of these quirky-looking birds at our website, LOE.org. Next time on Living on Earth, Alaska has tough regulations on how and when people can fish, so it has one of the healthiest salmon fisheries in the world. Alaska is the jewel of the world when it comes to fisheries management. This state is second to none. But new mines planned over the border in Canada have fishermen fearing for the future. That's next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week up in southeast Alaska in the company of humpback whales. These humpbacks were recorded underwater where they're keeping company with the harbor ports. Bernie Krauss, who recorded these marine mammals, also caught the sound of a glacier calving off an iceberg. This adventure in sound is part of the Wild Sanctuary series on a CD called Whales, Wolves, and Eagles of Glacier Bay. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, Jenny Doring, Lauren Hinkle, James Kerwood, and Jennifer Marquis are all part of our team. Our show is engineered by Noel Flatt. Special thanks this week to Trout Unlimited. Allison Learstein composed our themes. And you can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, 
furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. www.stonyfield.com PRI Public Radio International